you're new with us, my name is Chad Young. I'm the youth leader here. I don't usually do this on Sunday mornings. Usually Scott does or our elders. Rob refers to himself and the elders as the B team. So since I'm the youth pastor, I guess that get, means you get the C team today. Um, but we've been, the last nine weeks, we've been going through the book of Mark one chapter at a time. And we're going to continue that today looking at Mark chapter 10. So if you guys have a Bible, I know there's some under your seats. I would encourage you uh, to get it out and follow along. Most of what I will say should be on the PowerPoint, but just in case, it's always nice to have the Bible in your hand. Um, you know, every time a pastor gets up here and they start a sermon, they usually have some horrible corny joke to begin with, and I don't have any of those. So I'm just going to let you guys know that next Sunday, November 3rd, all of our clocks go back. So make sure you find your receipts this week so you can take them back. <laughs> Was that corny enough for you guys? All right. So we're just going to jump right into Mark chapter 10. I'm not going to be able to get through the whole chapter, but there are a few things that I really want to touch on. And the first one is divorce. Um, anytime you preach about divorce from the stage, it's a sensitive topic. I know it affects a lot of people in the church. And no matter if you preach a ton of grace or on the other end, there's always people that um, give you flack for what you said. So I believe that's why they threw me up here today, so I could take all that. Um, but in all honesty, I asked for this chapter when we were doing, when we were talking about this series, because this chapter has really opened my eyes to a lot this year. Um, and so I'm not trying to offend anyone when I preach about divorce. I'm just trying to open up God's word and say what I think it says. So, chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus teaching about divorce. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter, and he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So here we see the Pharisees coming up to Jesus, trying to corner him like they always do, trying to ask him a question that he's going to answer in the wrong way so that they have something to stand on in their fight against Jesus. And so they say, can a man divorce his wife? And Jesus says, what did Moses com command you? And what they say is Moses allowed. So here Jesus is asking for a commandment and they can't come up with one so they say what Moses has allowed and what they're referring to comes from Deuteronomy chapter 24 um, verses 1 through 4 and what that says is when a man takes a wife and marries her if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and it goes on and on and on. And that this from Deuteronomy, from the book of Deuteronomy, Moses' law is what they're standing on. But there's two words we need to look at and the first one is the word if. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but when someone commands me, they usually say, Chad, go do this. They don't say, if you want to do this, or if you do this, if in no way represents any type of command. And remember, Jesus is looking for a command. And the second word we need to look at is indecency. They say if a woman has not found favor in her husband's eyes because of some indecency that he has seen in her. Now, around this time, there were two very prominent rabbis that were teaching God's word. One was Rabbi Hillel, and one was Rabbi Shammai. So here's two different schools of thought, and each has their own group of followers. Now, Rabbi Hillel believed that the word indecency meant anything that the man didn't like about his wife. If she burnt a meal, if he found someone else more attractive, if she was too loud, if he didn't like the way she dressed, any of those were grounds for a man to divorce his wife. And so what that shows is he's kind of teaching marriage is more of a convenience. It's not really part of God's will. It can't be broken. Let's just make it easy on us, especially as men. Now, Rabbi Shammai was on the opposite end, and him and his followers believed that a man could divorce his wife for any indecency that and that word indecency meant adultery. So here's one rabbi teaching, anything that you don't like about your wife, you can divorce her for. You, it can be easy on you. Oh, I made a mistake. Get out of it. But here's Rabbi Shammai saying, now if she commits adultery, that's the only ground a man has to divorce his wife. And so the Pharisees are asking Jesus if, it, if a man's allowed to divorce his wife, hoping that he's going to say one of three things. No. She's not allowed to. And then they're going to say, well, the law of Moses says that he can, so you're wrong. Or two, yeah, they can divorce their wife if she commits adultery. Then they can turn to the teachings of Rabbi Hillel and say, well, indecency means anything. And if Jesus says, well, she, he can divorce her for anything, then they're going to say, no, indecency means adultery. So they think that they have Jesus cornered, and Jesus responds with this. Mark 10, verses 5 through 9. Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So in other words, because of your unwillingness to obey God's will, to follow God's will, because we're broken people, Moses wrote this in Deuteronomy. So because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So though they are no longer two, but one. And what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So what Jesus responds with is scripture, but it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. And these words that Jesus speaks here are from Genesis chapter 2, which is also part of the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. But here in Jesus' response, we see a few things. First, he says God created them, which shows ownership. God created man and woman. He owns man and woman. He is Lord over them. So what his will is for their life is the will they are supposed to follow. It shows that God has ownership over his creation. Secondly, it says that a man should leave his father and mother and hold strong to his wife. Now what this is saying, it's not saying, oh, he has to desert his family, but what it's saying is that the marriage relationship is now stronger than any blood relationship so when you enter into a marriage, that now becomes your most important relationship here on earth, apart from your family. So if any in-laws are out there, hear this loud and clear. And I can say this because my in-laws aren't here today. So please, you know, just 
we'll just keep it between us. But, so Jesus is saying the marriage relationship is now the most important relationship that they have. And then he finishes with what God has brought together, let not man separate. And that's where we see a commandment. We see a commandment of God bringing something together and telling his people, what I have given you, do not tear it apart. That's a lot more of a commandment than what the Pharisees wanted to use with the word, if someone divorces them. And so what we see here is the Pharisees don't really understand scripture like they think they do. And Jesus is showing them that he stands on the word of God, the true word of God from the beginning, and this is the commandment. Now what we see in Deuteronomy 24, uh, Moses wrote mainly to protect in the divorce. He says, if. So if you are going to break God's will and get a divorce, then this is how you're going to do it because there needs to be protection for the parties involved in the divorce, especially the women in this case. Because back in this time, women had absolutely no rights. They were just treated like possessions, which is why all these laws are written for the guys. And Jesus is saying that if you break this, then the woman needs some protection. When a woman got married, her father sent her into that marriage with an endowment. An endowment was pretty much an inheritance. So if she got money or camels or ox or any type of livestock, she got to enter into that marriage with this, and it was hers. So the certificate of divorce made it so that when a man sent his wife with a certificate of divorce, she was then able to take her endowment with her. So as he's divorcing her, shunning her from her family, which now she has no one to protect her, he's saying at least you still have your endowment to take into another marriage if you so choose to do that. So then we see later in the house, um, his disciples ask him again about this because they're not quite sure what Jesus was saying. And Jesus says, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. What Jesus just did is give women right to divorce the husband. Because if the husband has rights to step outside of God's will and get a divorce, then why can't she? What if he's the one that commits adultery? Now she has no grounds to protect herself. So the disciples are blown away because it's like, whoa, Jesus just gave rights in a marriage to the woman, which is unheard of in this time. And so what we can see in this is that, yes, I believe divorce is outside of God's will. I don't believe it was ever intended for a couple to come together and then get divorced. Now, with that being said, I have a lot of friends and some mentors that are divorced and now remarried, and the marriage that they're in now is without a doubt God's will on their life. And so I don't know why they had to go through a divorce in order to enter into God's will. Maybe that first marriage wasn't part of God's will originally. Maybe the, you know, how many of you have heard, oh, well, we're both Christians. Let's just get married. That's all we need, right? It never works out. So maybe that marriage to begin with wasn't in God's will. They didn't, do, they didn't approach the Father with prayer. They didn't seek wise counsel. I have no idea why they had to go through a divorce to enter into God's will. And quite frankly, I don't care because neither does God. God doesn't look at our past like he cares about us in the present and how we're going to move forward. It's evident throughout scripture that God hates divorce. But it's also evident that God hates pride, that he hates when I struggle with lust, that he hates when I struggle with anger. God hates every sin that we commit, but he never hates the person. So yeah, God might hate divorce, but he never hates the divorced person. 
And I think the issue here that Jesus is getting at, which he usually tries to get to, is where are your hearts? Are your hearts in line to keep my commandments? I know you're going to sin. I know you're going to fall short. That's why I came. But if your heart is in line with my commandments, that's what I'm after. I'm not after anyone saying it was a sin. It isn't a sin. God doesn't care what we think or isn't a sin because he knows what a sin is, but he also knows that he died to forgive our sins and he doesn't look at our sins. And so the question here isn't, is divorce a sin or not? The question I want to ask you guys is when it comes to God and his commandments, do you keep them? That's the first question I want you to think about. If you have your notes, you can write it down. But do you keep God's commandments and why? Because I think that is at the heart of the issue. That's why Jesus asked, what did Moses command you? So, enough with divorce. I'm uncomfortable talking about that. I don't have an ex any experience in that, so we're just going to move on, all right? We're going to talk about children now. I do have a little bit of experience in this because I have an 18-month-old son. Verse 13, and they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. There's two words in here. The first, it says that Jesus became indignant with his disciples when they were rebuking the people, bringing the children to them. Because in this time, children were almost like women, and his disciples are saying, this is Jesus. He doesn't have time to waste on these little kids. He has more important things to attend to. And it says Jesus became indignant. Now, the Greek word for indignant, I hope I get this right, is agonakteo. And that word suggests strong emotion. So strong, in fact, that throughout the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the books that depict Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ministry on earth. In those four Gospels, Jesus never directs more anger at his disciples than he does in this instance. He's not just indignant with them. He is furious with them for rebuking these children. There's other parts where throughout his ministry where Jesus gets frustrated. He calls them a faithless generation. He asks, how long am I going to have to put up with this faithless generation? But he never gets as angry with his disciples as he does right here for rebuking children. The next word is, it says he blessed them. And the Greek verb for this is katalugeo. Katalugeo, I think I said it right. I don't know. But this verb is an in intensive force, which means that he kept on blessing. So he didn't say, how dare you turn these children away? Children, come. And then he blessed them as a whole. No, he got down on a knee, and each kid that was coming to him, he took time to bless each kid. The blessing was continuing because he did it with each kid. This shows something here that Jesus cares about children and that he wants us to approach him like these children do, with excitement, knowing, I don't care what you say. I don't care if I'm just a kid. I'm going to approach Jesus because I love him, because I trust him. You know, a couple weeks ago, me and Bliss, that's my wife, we were uh, delivering a load of hay to a customer in Elizabeth, and we took Cole along. We try and do these loads of hay as a family whenever we can, and I was sitting there stacking hay in the barn, and Bliss and Cole were playing around, 
And the customer had these extension cords that were plugged into her ceiling. Have you guys ever seen those? They're on a retractable wheel. So when you pull it down, you can use it and then it goes right back up. Now, before I get into the rest of the story, you need to know something about my son, Cole. He's 19 months and the only word he cares about is the word tractor. He's obsessed with tractors. Tractors are his favorite toys. He has a diaper that he wears. He always wants to wear his tractor diaper. And I'm like, buddy, we need to clean that before you wear it again. And, and he has a tractor sweatshirt. And he always wants to go to the ranch to ride his pappy's tractor. And it's tractor, tractor, tractor. And so as I'm stacking this hay, I'm talking to Bliss. And I say, look, these are the extension cords I was talking about that I want in our garage because they're out of the way. You can pull it down. And then when you're done with it, it retracts back up. Now, Cole only hears the word tractor. And he turns to his mom and says, tractor, tractor, tractor. He's not saying, mom, dad just called that a tractor. He's crazy. He's going tractor. Mommy, do you see it? Do you see the tractor? It doesn't look like any tractor I've seen, but it's a tractor because daddy said so. Do you see it, mom? Do you see that tractor? My daddy said it was a tractor, so it has to be a tractor. And I was like, wow. He takes me at my word. <laughs> he trusts me. Even if it doesn't make sense to anyone else around, he trusts me. So the next question I want to ask you guys is, do you approach Jesus? Do you approach the Father with trust? Like these children. Do you approach him with trust? So now we're going to move in to this next section about the rich young ruler. This specific section is why this chapter, I have read it numerous times this year because it has just opened my eyes to a different way of thinking when it comes to Scripture. It has led me to question Scripture. It has led me to look at it from different points of view. I'm going to hope to share some of that with you. So picking up in verse 17, the rich young man, some of the Bibles you have might say the rich young ruler. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witnesses, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the first thing I want to look at here is the use of the word good. This rich young man approaches Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, Jesus isn't questioning his deity. He's not saying, whoa, don't call me, don't call me God. But what he's doing is asking this young man, do you believe what you just said? Do you believe what you're saying when you call me good? And then he goes on to list six commandments from the Ten Commandments. So what we can take from that is the other four commandments that Jesus didn't list have Adam. They obviously don't matter. And that was a joke. Um, so he goes through these commandments, and then 
this teacher responds to Jesus again and says, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And in that instance, we see something, and it's this young man saying, Ooh, you're right. I should reserve that word good for only God. See, in this, in this time, the word good was only used for God. The Jews, because of the law, didn't believe that anyone could be good and that God alone was the only good thing. Now, as you can see, that word has got watered down throughout time. We, you, we throw good around. Hey, I got a good woman at home. Hey, that's a good guy. Hey, good job. Good, good, good. And it's not even a strong emotion for us. But in this time, the word good was reserved only for God. And so here he is saying, teacher, you're right. I mean, you're pretty okay, but I should hold on to that word for God. We're going to come back to that because that's a big deal. And he says, I've, t I've kept all these things from my youth. And then it says Jesus looked at him and loved him. It doesn't say Jesus said, hey, why, why aren't you calling me good anymore? And it didn't say Jesus said, oh, yeah, right, you've kept them from your youth. No one can keep this law from their youth. Jesus doesn't do any of that. He looks at him and loves him. And the reason I think that Jesus loved him is because of this young man's excitement, his energy and his desire to say, God, gee, what do I need to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's all I want out of life is to have a spot in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is trying to, he's not dispelling any of that energy or excitement, but he's trying to show him that you need to turn it towards faith and worship and not towards works. Because see, this young man is caught up on works. The more I work, the more I do, that's going to get me into heaven. And Jesus goes on to tell him, then sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. Jesus is showing him, if you think it's about works, you're always going to have more to do. There's never going to be enough. And so if you think that you can work your way into heaven, there's always going to come a time that there's something that you just can't do. There's going to be a work in front of you that you're just not capable of doing. And then you're not in heaven. So Jesus is here saying, it's not about works. I want you to put that energy into worship towards me. and into faith in me and my Father. And so he goes on to tell this guy to sell all of his things. Now, we can probably assume, we know that he walked away sad because he had great possessions. But what we don't know is what he did with those possessions. We can probably assume that he sold them. But what if he didn't? What if he... No, sorry. I, I just confused myself. We can assume that he held on to those possessions because he walked away sad. But what if he didn't? What if he sold his possessions? Is he in heaven? Is that the ticket that got him into heaven? Did Jesus all of a sudden just add works to our salvation? I don't believe so. I believe that Jesus is seeing if this man can be obedient to him. He's not asking for works, he's asking for obedience. And we all know that half obedience is still disobedience. Jesus doesn't just ask this young man to sell his things, but he follows it up with saying, and, so to continue on with this commandment, come and follow me. Now when we follow someone in the way that Jesus is referring to here, it's not the way we follow someone on Facebook or InstaTweet or any of those stupid social media sites. 
And yes, I said it, I'm a youth pastor. I probably should be up on social media, but it drives me crazy. I waste so much time on Facebook, it's ridiculous. And I'm just gonna be honest with you guys, it's not because I'm sitting there reading your posts. If you're my friend on Facebook, there's a good chance I've unfollowed you because what most people put on there isn't worth reading. So you're probably asking, well, what do you do on Facebook? Well, I read about the Denver Broncos. I read about the Farmer's Almanac. I just waste time on social media. I don't believe it's useful. So Jesus isn't saying, oh, just follow someone to kind of keep tabs on them. Jesus is saying, come and follow me with all you have. And when we follow someone in this way, we follow them because we trust them. We believe what they say. We believe that they're going to lead us to a better future. So really, we follow someone because we believe that they are who they say they are. And what I want to ask you guys, the third question I want you to think about is do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? He asked this rich young man to come and follow him. And whether he sold or kept his possessions doesn't matter. Because what I think we can see here is that this rich young man did not follow Jesus. Because like I said, when we follow someone, is because we believe they are who they say they are. And when he rescinds the word good in his addressing of Jesus, I think that tells us everything we need to know about him. That right there says, I don't believe you are who you say you are. Because good is reserved for God and God alone. And if he believed Jesus was the Messiah, if he believed Jesus was who he said he was, who scripture prophesied he was going to be, he wouldn't have thought twice about using that word good again. So do you believe Jesus is who he says he is? You know, after this, his disciples are kind of, uh, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples how hard it's going to be for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And it's harder than a camel going through the eye of the needle. He's not saying it's impossible, but he's saying it's hard because we can let our possessions have us, right? Right? But like I said, this guy, he might have sold his possessions. He might not have. If he did sell his possessions, if someone, if Jesus came to me and said, Chad, sell everything you have and come and follow me, I would hope I would follow him. And I would hope I would obey him and sell all my possessions. But I'm not going to be exactly super excited about it. I might walk away downcast knowing I'm getting ready to part with all these possessions that I've worked hard to acquire. Gifts from people that have cared about me. Gifts that have blessed me when I was in a time of need. All these things that I have, I'm getting ready to part with. So I would be a little sad too. And so just like this rich young man, we need to be careful when it comes to idolatry. We need to be careful that our possessions don't have a hold on us. But idolatry isn't necessarily your ticket out of heaven, just like divorce isn't. It's a sin that we all struggle with. And his disciples are like, um, Jesus, if it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven, then who's going to enter heaven? Because in this time, the more wealth you had, the more possessions you had, it was looked at as a blessing from God. So the more money you had, the more blessing you had from God. And if the people that have the most blessing from God can't get into heaven, then who can? And his disciples are like, crap, we don't, this is going to be impossible for us. And Jesus comforts them with this, verses 29 through 31. He says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, 
who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So here's Jesus saying, if you give up all this for me, I'm going to give it back. Now I think we have a slide here that has the list of what you give up. It's brothers, mothers, sisters, fathers, houses, lands. And then there's a list of all the things you get back. Well, that's not quite the right one, but it should be the one before that. I didn't give them an outline for my sermon. I spaced that, so all the tech stuff is my fault. Blame me. Um, so Jesus is saying, if you give up all of this, then I'm going to give it back to you. But the one thing that's missing on that list that you're going to get back is the word father. Now, that doesn't mean you're, you're giving up a relationship with your earthly father. No, see, in this time, your identity came from your father or from your father's house. If you were part of Abraham's household and you were walking through the streets and you were like, I'm with Abraham, it was like, get out of his way, he's with Abraham. Because Abraham had such high status. So your identity comes from your father and your father's house. And on top of that, you're probably expected to follow in your father's footsteps. If he was a tax collector, they're expecting you to be a tax collector. If he was a carpenter, they're most likely expecting you to be a carpenter. So you get your identity from your father's house. So what Jesus is saying here is are you willing to let go of your identity to follow me? We all have some part of our old identity that's holding on to us. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me and give up everything, I will give it all back, but I'm not gonna give you your old identity back. And you don't want that anyways. He said, Chad, the drug addict, the drug dealer, the womanizer, you don't want that identity back. Replace those three words for yourself. What's that identity that's holding on to you? What's that identity that's preventing you from stepping into your true identity? And here Jesus saying, no, not anymore. That's not your identity anymore. Your identity is forgiven. Your identity is clean. Your identity is grace. Your identity is saved. Your identity is beauty. Your identity is worthy. It's free. It's power. It's strength. Your identity is honor. Your identity is holy. Your identity is love. Your identity has a new name now, and that name is child of God. So the question that I want to ask you guys, those first three questions don't matter. The question I want to ask you is, are you willing to leave your identity behind? Because if you're not willing to leave your identity behind, then you don't believe Jesus is who he says he is. And if you don't believe he is who he says he is, you're not going to trust him. And how can you keep commandments from someone that you don't trust? So my question for you is, are you willing to leave your old identity behind? The band plays this last song. That's what these steps are for. 
Maybe today is the first day that you're willing to step into your identity as a child of God. If that's you, if it's a first-time decision, I would love to pray for you. Scott would love to pray with you. We have leaders up here. Maybe your, your old identity is creeping in and you're saying, I need, I need to go lay that at the altar. Today's the day. Bring your identity up here and leave it at the foot of the cross. And any of you that are out there, one of the things that Jesus promises when we step into this new identity is a family. So if you see someone coming up here to leave their identity at the altar, do not let them come up here alone. Today, no one comes up here alone because they're coming up here to say, I'm going to step into my identity as a child of God. And then we're going to show them that that comes with a huge family. So my question for you today is, are you willing to leave your identity behind? Oh, come to the altar, the 